to begin. All right. Huh. Um, we are going to spend some time in reflection this morning. We've done this before. This is one of our hopes. Um, real, uh, well, let me say this. Setting out to study Colossians, you know, our ultimate goal is to know what God, why God put this book in the Bible, this letter in the Bible, what God wanted us to get out of it, you know, why He inspired Paul to write it, um, what is He trying to tell us, and so, uh, you know, what does He want to teach us about Jesus. So these are all the main kind of goals, to, to seek the author's intended meaning, to seek, to seek what God has in store, why he, what He wants to say through Colossians. Um, that's why we study the Bible, to, to know and love Him. Um, but, but, a, but for this study, for this summer, something that we've been trying to focus on, kind of a, a, a secondary goal or a sub-goal, is to grow in the ability to, to do two things when it comes to study the Bible. One is to uh, interpret the Bible correctly. Um, and we talk about this, this word, the, the word is hermeneutics, which is this process of of interpretation, and and so we want to grow in the ability to be able to seek and understand the historical context, and understand the literary context, and and to really get to the author's intended meaning, in order to understand maybe what this greater principle is, in order to apply it to us. So that's one on one side of it is is to grow in this ability to to interpret the Bible. So the reason we or teaching it the way we're teaching it with, with someone usually at the beginning kind of walking through the text and, and sharing the background and walking through the literary, literary context and helping see, see the things that are in the text. And then the second half, the person is really more speaking in a, a theological application or a reflection on kind of a bigger theme in this, in this section. So we want to we teach in the way that, that we should study, which is to first start there, Start with understanding the text in order to apply it to our life. Um, so that that's that's this hermeneutic side, the 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 uh, the interpret the interpretive process. But there's also a spiritual process. There's also uh, a, a, an ability to discern the spirit's leading. There's also a an a, a skill I would call it in in growing to learn how to listen to to God when we study the Bible. To learn how to um, to pause and to not just seek information, but to let God speak and to, and to allow this Word to have authority on our life and to be moved and changed and, and to follow and obey. So, so th- these two processes are, are important. And so this is the second time we've kind of taken some, uh, an intentional, to spend some intentional time reflecting on the past couple weeks. So I passed out a sheet that you should have, and on the back or front, however you want, on the front it has these three sections of scripture that I'm going to read in uh, in chapter two, in the beginning of chapter three. So, if you want to open your Bible, I'm going to be reading from from the ESV. You can follow along, or you can just listen. So here's here's kind of your job or your your role right now is to, if you were here for those studies, when we studied those verses, is to think back on that particular night, that, that lesson, and uh, maybe you have your notes there, and to, and to go back through some of those notes, and, you know, as I'm reading, as I'm 
reading through it. We're gonna, after that, we're going to take a couple minutes to reflect. So what I'd love for that to be is it's a time for you to jot down in that space or in your journal to jot down. These are some things that I think you were speaking in that section or something that maybe you, know, you were revealing or showing or something, you know, something that jumped out to me. Um, so now is not the time to figure out how to apply that or go do it. I, honestly, tonight is just a time of reflection and to, to jot some of, that some of that stuff down so that you can go back to it later and say, okay, I need to do something with this. This is what I think God is saying and this is what I think, and I, I need to spend some time figuring out what to do about it. So that's really your, your role. So I'm going to read these verses. If you, and let me say this, if you weren't here when we studied that particular section and uh, you're kind of coming in um, tonight, then, then just allow, allow the text to kind of speak and, and, uh, and let, it, you know, let it be what it is and, and let it jump out however it does. And, and if nothing, nothing jumps out real, then, then that's fine. You know, um, just we'll, we'll wait and we'll move on to the next section here after a couple minutes. Let me get my timer. Oh, actually, I got it on my watch. All right. So I'm going to read Colossians 2, 6 through 15. Actually, let me pray, and then we'll, we'll jump in. God, I am thankful for this group, and I'm thankful for um, just an opportunity to, to pause and to reflect and to allow your word to speak and to, to recall, God, maybe things that you've been saying to us. They don't even have to be necessarily things from this text, but they could just be things from our day, from our week, from the past month. Um, God, help us to, to, to observe those things and reflect on those things, write those things down, put some clarity to some things that you're saying. Um, so that it helps us move forward with you. And so, use this time for your purposes. Speak through your word. May your voice be loudest tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. I did forget to mention this. Um, I, wanted, I wanted this to kind of be the backdrop. If you've been around Sunnybrook for a little bit, you've probably seen something like this. We, we talk about, real quickly, we talk about, here's what this X means. Um, you're going through life, and then something happens. God speaks or, or you, He shows you something or you have a moment where, of clarity um, where you feel like God has kind of broken through into your world. And usually if we, if we don't spend the time, we just kind of go on by it and go, oh, that's interesting and just keep going. But what we're, this process of kind of stopping and kind of going through the process of reflecting on what God has said maybe changing our mind about something, turning to His truth, turning away from something to Him, um, and then eventually believing and trusting what God has said and responding with obedience um, sends us kind of on a new trajectory. So, anyway, I wanted this picture to kind of be in the backdrop as we, as we read through and reflect. Okay, Colossians 2. 6 through 15. Let me, let me say this uh, as I introduce. I'm doing a lot of introduction, but I'll get going here soon. Basically, verses 6 and 7 are kind of a main thrust of the book, that we, what we believe. Uh, it really, Paul kind of lays out the main thrust here in these verses, 6 and 7. And then verse 8, there's this, he introduces this, this command to, to not 
fall for worldly philosophies. And so he's kind of introduced that. He's going to come back to it a little bit later, but he's going to introduce it with this imperative command. And then 9 through 15, he's going to give the reason. He's going to give these indicative statements. The reason we don't fall for worldly philosophies is because of who Jesus is, is because of what we have in him, and is because of where we now stand. So that's kind of what's going to happen in these verses. Verse 6. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God, who were raised from the dead." who raised Him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and He put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Take a couple minutes to reflect, and we'll move on. Okay. As we go into the next section, Paul, Paul is going to jump back to this idea of not falling for worldly philosophies. And so he's going to really hit this, and he's going to, he's going to give some specific ways that people are trying to to judge, pass judgment, and to disqualify um, them. And, and then he's going to say, don't listen to them. Instead, submit to the head, who is Jesus. And then he's going to give, in verses 20 through 22, he's going to give some, a, a specific example of a, of a worldly re- regulation that was kind of maybe being stated during the time. And he's going to quote it. And, and, um, and then he's going to give, in that very last verse, He's going to talk about why that, that, this regulation has no power, no power to actually do what everyone thinks that that statement does. No power to, no power to really have any control over the flesh or have any um, stopping the, the, the indulgence of the flesh. And so that, those are our verses that we're going to read here, 16 through 23. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism or worship of angels, going on in details, detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and, knitting, and knit t- together, through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. 
If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings? These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Take a couple minutes. Okay. So Paul continues, you know, when, when Paul writes this, he doesn't write with chapters, and so this, this letter continues, and he, and he goes from describing this regulation that has no power to actually do what they claim it does. And, and he, sa- he starts off this idea by saying, you know, if, if with Christ you died to these, this worldly way of thinking, why would you choose to live in it? He's going to say, in, in our verses next, he's going to say, because you died to those things, you're now alive in Christ. And so um, fix your, your time and your attention, your affection on Him. Focus on Him. And then by His strength and power, here's how you actually deal with the flesh. And he's going to talk about, in verses 5 through through 11, he's going to say, this is, by His strength and power, this is how you deal with the flesh. This is how you put to death these things and, and not do these things. These things are not okay. And then and he's going to say, by His strength and power, this is, this is how you put on, this is, how you, this is what you should do um, as followers of Him. So he's going to give some practical ways to live this out in these verses. So read, we're going to read 3, 1 through 17. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil, desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and and hymns and spiritual songs 
with, thanks, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Alright, so I would like for you to, just with some people around you, four or five of you around, um, to, uh, to just share if, if there's something that's over the last couple of weeks from, from these verses or even just in your life that God's been kind of re- showing you, revealing, sh- saying to you, I'd love for you to have an opportunity to share that with, with your group. Um, and if specifically how these verses have kind of jumped out at you either tonight or when you studied them a few weeks ago. Um, so I want to give you time to do that. So take about five or seven minutes or so and share those things with your group. And then, and then Ryan will get up and teach through the next section. Okay. Let's hop into um, the end of Colossians 3. You, as your notes show, we'll actually start chapter uh, 4. The, uh, the guy who was riding across Europe deciding where chapters and verses go was not inspired by the Holy Spirit, so he botched this one for us. Um, Drew is actually supposed to teach, or he taught this, this part of the lesson on Sunday, but he is in um, Tennessee right now teaching all week at a Christ in Youth conference, so he's there with the probably hundreds of high school students teaching every day, and so... I'm sure he would appreciate your prayers. I'm sure he's doing a great job. Um, but uh, he gave me his teaching notes to come in and, and teach his part tonight. So if you really like it, Drew wrote great notes. If it's horrible, I didn't have the same comedic timing. I'll take that one. But um, no, this is, a, this is a great section, if for no other reason than it's got a couple of controversies, as Nelda already pointed out. Um, but it's a fun section. And it comes, this is, where, this is really where, I won't call this the heart of the letter, because I would put that more in chapter 2, probably at the end of chapter 3, is kind of the beef of the letter. Um, but this is what all of that beef has been pushing towards. This is what all that deep, rich, theological substance has been moving towards. Finally, Paul is getting to this point where he's out of the abstract, he's out of the ideal, he's out of this perfect case of putting on Christ and putting off all other things and he says okay like this is what it's going to look like and he has gone off as we've seen throughout this letter on just how incredible Christ is starts of course with how incredible the father is then Jesus is and how that has shaped Paul's life and he has served and he's poured himself out for everyone that he's come in contact with and he's really built it up to the point where it's like if all of this is true Paul I will do anything I will get stoned going into a city to preach the gospel. I will endure shipwrecks. I will endure people trying to worship me as gods, and then when they find out that that's not really the case, they'll turn on me. I would do that, Paul, if all this is true. And so it's kind of building up. You almost think he's going to have this huge ask. Therefore, sell everything you have and go across the world and tell everyone you know about Jesus and adopt every orphan you ever saw. And this is where Paul lands. This is how he, he kind of sums up the letter. He says, if all of this is true, this is what I want Larry and Nelda and Kayla to do. 
He says this, starting in verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as it is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your, your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. It feels a bit anticlimactic compared to just how majestic and cosmic the first three chapters of the letter have been. It feels rather common. And to be honest, it's really not all that different from the other sages of the day, from those who also profess to have some sort of wisdom apart from Christ, but would simply say, I have some instructions for how you should live. They had what we call a household code. And Paul, at first blush, doesn't seem to be offering anything new. And it's like, wow, you went off on Jesus. And how important he is and how he changes everything. And yet this looks a lot like the wisdom we'd get from the Greek philosophers from those who work for the Roman elite, those who would think through things and say, this then is how you should live. Paul's instructions don't look all that different. Um, His is quite similar to many of the household codes, but there are a couple of very serious distinctions. Um, This passage is controversial across the board. It would have been controversial back then for a couple of reasons, and it's controversial now. That first verse gets us to kind of, we can, our heart jumps into our throat. This is, a, this is a no-no in today's society. In fact, it's a no, take away gender. It's a no-no that anyone would submit to anyone else. We love our own autonomy. We love this individuality that says that I can decide for myself who are you to enslave me. I could almost take Paul's argument from Galatians and flip it on this text if I were to be a little dishonest with how things should work. But like we, we love to celebrate freedom and we look at verse 18 and say, wow, that just seems so binding. And I, and it, I bristle at it a bit as a male, as a husband, as someone who seemingly stands to benefit from such an arrangement. It bothers me. And yet, this is what Paul says. It drives us crazy. But when Paul wrote this, it was an absolute given. No one in Colossae batted one eyelash when they read this. This is how society was ordered. And I'm not simply saying that because something was the way that it is, therefore we shouldn't rock the boat. No, when Paul saw an injustice or when he saw something that was wrong, he would mess with it and he would let the gospel challenge it. But he doesn't challenge this. Wives naturally assumed that they were submit to their husbands. That was the cultural norm and Paul leaves it. Three chapters on the beauty of the gospel. Paul leaves that one. And it's 
it hurts our rather modern sensibilities. And we don't have a whole lot of time to go in and defend this. Uh, other good sections that will say much the same thing, Ephesians 5, we'll go there in a second, because it probably explains it a little bit better. This one just gives us a passing verse. So to, um, I think it's 1 Peter 3, verse 8. Maybe it's the other way around. It's the first eight verses of 1 Peter 3. Um, another great section um, where, where Paul is in, in, in agreement with himself in Ephesians and he'll give us a lot more justification for why he gives his command. And then he agrees with the great apostle um, Peter. And both of them seem to be deriving this from the truth of the gospel. So let's see a little bit how we can unpack this. Um, the word, if you'll notice, is different than his instructions to slaves. And to workers. He tells them to obey. He tells wives to submit. That is a different word. And it's important to note that there is um, a bit of a distinction there. Submit. Um, if we're to get a bit of a dictionary definition for the Greek word, means to arrange oneself under. Submit actually is not a word that I can like enforce on someone. I can't, like Paul doesn't tell me to make my wife submit. He asks her to willfully submit. There is a sharp difference there between someone who has the authority to enforce obedience and someone who has a role in a household to which someone is to willingly submit. Very, very, maybe it seems like a, I'm playing around with words, but I promise there's a bit of a difference there. Um, it shows up all over the New Testament, but let's, let's go to that great chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, and see if we can find this same word being used in a slightly different way. It can help us a bit. 1 Corinthians 15, verse, starting in verse 27. Um, this is the great chapter. Um, we have mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. This is effectively Paul's gospel in a nutshell. It'll agree with the gospel that he preaches in um, Antioch, uh, Pisidian Antioch, in Acts 13, and this is um, likely, especially the first um, eight verses or so, some of the earliest New Testament scripture we have, as Paul is repeating these words that the church would have kind of latched on to. But if you'll jump down, it's talking more about Jesus and what that has to do with the church. Go to verse 27. For God has put all things in subjection under His, Jesus' feet. But when it says that all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He, Jesus, is accepted who put all things, or that God, the Father, sorry, is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him. It's God the Father who put all things in subjection under Him that God may be all in all. This is one of those great passages where I start hating the ESV. Because <laughs> it's just, come on, some synonyms for clarity's sake. But what this passage says is that as Christ is enthroned, as He, um, if, you, if you look back to Colossians 2, um, 15, that he has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. That is 
That is Christ's enthronement. And 1 Corinthians 15 says that at that moment, God put everything in subjection under Him. Everything in creation submits to Christ. Short of what? The Father. It says, the Son still submits to the Father. It's still subject, subjected, the same word, to the Father. Now, is the Father truly in His essence greater than the Son? And how you answer that will make you a heretic real quick if you get it wrong. Because our Trinitarian theology says there is no difference. Father, Son, and Spirit are the same being. They, they share the same essence. It's their ontos. If you, see, if, you, if you ever read an article where someone is talking about God's ontological nature, it's talking about that root core of His being that cannot be divided. That is, that is what the Trinity is. The Trinity is a singular being who manifests His presence in three persons. And it says that somehow in His essence, Christ and the Father are one. There is no difference and therefore no one can submit to another. And yet, functionally speaking, practically speaking, in His personhood, Christ submits Himself to the Father's will. That is the story of the Gospels. Christ does that non-stop throughout the Gospels. You, it's very difficult to go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John and see and find Jesus doing something out of His own will. I mean, it's just non-stop an act of submission to someone else, the Father. And the Spirit, likewise, subjects Himself to the Father as He works out the, the plan that God is working through Jesus. So, Paul's, Paul's example, wives submit to your husbands, it's, it's easy, I think, for us today to say, wow, that sure seems degrading. And I would just say, maybe the Bible calls us to serve like Christ served. Not to make out husbands to be like equal to God the Father, but just that in Christ's economy, in the way that God is ruling the world, maybe we all have someone to submit to. My wife, like her saying, her, her, the way that she'll articulate this is she's very comfortable submitting to my leadership because A, the Bible tells her to, and that's pretty much good enough for her. B, she doesn't want the responsibilities that I have and that I will be held accountable for to lead a family. And then finally she says, I just have one more person to submit to than my husband. It's not as if he is out here making all of his own decisions. He still must submit to the leadership of the elders. I still have to submit to church leadership as a whole. I have to submit to governmental authorities. Much like my wife, I have to submit to the leading of the Spirit and to the will of God working Himself through Jesus. Like, what's The difference isn't quite as stark as we might want to make it seem when we say, wow, this is so archaic and barbaric. How could we ask wives to submit to their husbands? Doesn't, I don't know that it takes all of the bad taste out of your mouth. However, um, one of my strongest convictions is that for whatever reason, Paul feels no compulsion to reform that part of society. And this is a guy that wasn't scared to say something needs to change because of the gospel. And if I can't explain it well, I'm just going to submit to the leadership of a capital A apostle and say, this is what I want. 
I want to follow Christ as He has revealed Himself in the Scriptures through the Spirit working through Paul. Oh, Verse 19. Okay, that's one verse. I promise we're about to pick up speed. You see how if I don't have to like exhaust myself studying this, I just get someone else's notes, I can go. Okay. Okay, now there are a couple of differences between this household code and that that the Colossian church would have known from other sources. And verse 19 is obviously one of them. This would have been the most controversial line in Paul's, in Paul's letter, or at least in this section. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Paul's writing this to a society that says that wives are a second-class citizen. They are, they are a notch above property, but not... By far. Um, the, actually, a wife probably in terms of status would, would be significantly lower than even male children in terms of the household. And this is again where I can trust, like I can submit myself to why I don't understand verse 18 as well because Paul was, was going to check this one. This is a part of society that he thought the gospel must reform. Husbands must love their wives. And they can't be harsh with them. You'll see as he, shows, as he talks about all these relationships between husbands and wives and fathers and children and children and their parents and then uh, masters and slaves, what he's doing is he's giving every single person in the room dignity. That's what Paul does. Better than probably anyone I can find in antiquity, he gives everybody at the table a level of dignity provided by the gospel that society didn't otherwise provide. It says, your wife, an image bearer of the creator of the universe, must be loved. Don't be harsh with her. Um, if, in, in the other household codes of antiquity, the, the, the philosophers gave very little press to how one would treat their wives. Ephesians 5 will help us understand this particular um, passage quite a bit. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 22, it also talks about submission to husbands. Um, and then it talks about Christ as the head of the church and husbands as the head of the home and talks about submission in that regard. But look at what it says um, for husbands. The instructions are go into far greater detail. Ephesians 5 Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In that one little section, Paul says, you should love your wife. Why? I don't need to give you any other reason than the fact that Jesus loved us first. And when He did, it made us holy. It was so fun last weekend to do a wedding and to read this particular passage to the groom and to tell him that his wedding was not about making him happy. His marriage was not about making him happy. His marriage was about him loving his wife in a self-sacrificial way up to the point of death if necessary so that he makes her holy. Like he's to sanctify her. That's what... That's what Paul is calling husbands to do. Love your wives so much that they start looking more and more like Jesus. He goes on. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. 
just like Christ loves the church. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And then he gives in that great section from Genesis regarding marriage. This passage brings a lot of clarity to Colossians 3. A couple of reasons why. A wife's submission is intended to reflect the church's submission to Christ. This is, you know, a marriage should be just a constant teaching illustration. Rachel is supposed to let me lead her in such a way that people will marvel at the way the church submits themselves to the leadership of Jesus. And the primary purpose of submission is not for the husband's benefit. It is not so that he'll have it easy. It is not so that he'll never have to do dishes. It is not so that he won't have any responsibilities in the home. It's to demonstrate this beautiful relationship in, uh, between Christ and His bride. If you look at the relationship between Jesus and the church, who stands to gain the most? The one who emptied himself of his, of his access to his own divinity to be tortured and brutally murdered by his own creation for the sake of someone else, or those of us over here who just stand to reap all the rewards of that self-sacrificial act. The church benefits from its submission to Christ, and so too, I believe, wives stand to benefit from their submission to their husbands. Um... It is, it is a difficult thing to watch when a wife treats her husband poorly, um, mocks him, belittles him, berates him, cuts against his dignity and his leadership. And I don't even think it's a chauvinistic thing at all. When I see that, it makes me sick. Because... The image of God in him is being demeaned. And likewise, when a husband takes his authority and his leadership and abuses those that he's put in charge of, those he's in, who's, he's supposed to protect and care for, when that goes badly, it makes me sick because he is abusing someone who bears the image of God. And so, like, I know that we're talking about ideals here. But Paul never apologizes for asking us to... Uh, ascribe to the ideal. Wives, or wives, submit to your husbands. Show off the beauty of the relationship between Jesus and His church. Husbands, love your wives and show off the self-sacrificial act of mercy and kindness that Christ showed His church. Marriage is to be a picture of the gospel. Okay, back to Colossians and we'll bring this home. He goes on, children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. No questions asked there. Every single ancient code agreed with that. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. This one was less common. Um, fathers had every single right to do whatever they pleased with children. The oldest male child would have certain rights in the home, and every male ch child would have other rights. But by and large, a father was an absolute monarch in his home. 
who could do whatever he wanted with anyone he wanted in his home. Society would not even, like, blink if a father were to decide that his child needed to be killed in many ancient societies. What a father says goes. Um, here's a quote from, a, from an ancient historian who kind of describes the, the relationship between a father and his children in Roman society. The laws given um, to the Romans gave virtually full power to the father over his son, whether he, threw proper, whether he thought proper to imprison him, to scourge him or to have him whipped, to put him in chains and to keep him at work in the fields, or to put him to death. And this, even though the son were engaged in public affairs, though he were numbered among the highest magistrates, and though he were celebrated for his zeal for the commonwealth. That last line basically says, even when he's grown and gone and has a family of his own, whatever the father sees fit to do with his son, he can. Up to the point of killing him. And again, Paul comes in and gives dignity to everyone at the table and says, do not be harsh with your children. Do not be harsh with your children. Don't provoke them, or um, other, other translations will say, don't exasperate them. Um, I have one, and I'm starting to guess two, very strong-willed children, and... I haven't received a text message saying otherwise, so I still believe that my son has now been sitting at the dinner table for three hours, refusing to eat his chicken, which will still be cold and ready for him when he gets up for breakfast. And I struggle with this particular passage that says, like, don't exasperate your child, because I am always looking for this weird gray area where I can break his will without breaking his spirit where I can give him the dignity to obey. I could have forced Matthew to eat that chicken real easily. I can pin a three-year-old down and shove it down his mouth. But I want to maintain his dignity and to let him willingly submit to my leadership, even if it takes a long time to get there. And I'm trying to figure out how to do that without provoking him and crushing his little spirit. Now what this text doesn't say is, like, let your kids... Run wild. Still assumes the leadership of the home resides with the father, and in the case of the kids, with father and mother. It says there is something about that little person that I need you, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to view them as having far greater value than society says they have. They have dignity, and you'll treat them as such. They're image bearers, and you'll treat them as such. So Paul says, don't provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Then he says, bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. And this is the part, this is the second set of truths or instructions that bothers us. Oh, I just got a text. He ate it at 740, two hours and 40 minutes. I win. All right. That is some cold, gross chicken at that point. Okay. He tells slaves to obey their masters. Now, 
Um, before we just think that Paul all of a sudden found a group of people he doesn't care about and that this is demeaning, we have to separate slavery in our minds and in our context from slavery of the ancient world. Not that there was no abuse in the ancient world. I'll never go that far. But we picture when we hear slavery, uh, uh, African slaves in Alabama in the 1820s picking cotton fields. We picture slavery that is abusive, is, uh, uh, has people that have been taken from their land and are being worked to death and based on race. Not so in the ancient world. In the ancient world, slavery was not, um, it was not sorted out based on race. It was more sorted out based on economic status. You would, in most cases, willingly enter into slavery to pay off a debt. To pay off a debt. That's, that's more or less slavery in the ancient world. In major metropolitan areas such as Alexandria, Rome, Constantinople, even earlier than that, these places, up to half of the population in these monster cities would have been slaves. This is not like property as much as indentured servants would be a lot closer. So don't think Alabama cotton field. Think more like... Um, servants in an 18th, 19th century English household. People that found themselves in a situation where they had to work off a debt to someone. And not, maybe not even their master. Their master would more than likely have bought up their debt or paid off a debt to avoid imprisonment and then you would just work off your what's due to me. It's a lot, I mean... It's kind of like my relationship with Bank of America because of my house. I didn't have enough cash sitting around to buy a house. I went and made an arrangement where they would buy it for me, and then I would pay them every month and pay them a lot more than that house is worth, right? Like that, so like that's kind of closer to what ancient slavery was. And Paul tells them, obey your masters. Really? Is that what we're supposed to do? We're supposed to obey the master. And if, you're, if you've willingly entered into an arrangement, for, especially for economic reasons, the, the thing you can do with most integrity is to work off your debt. I could stop paying Bank of America and uh, just kind of go back on the deal and they would take the house or whatever. But if I were to do that, I would hope that every one of you in this room would say, like, but I want, I, you as a, as a member of Christ's bride need to have more integrity than that. You signed your name on a document that promised to hold up your end of the deal. You don't get to just change your mind because you don't feel like it anymore. Obey your masters, Paul says. You see how he's, he's giving them dignity to both the servant and the master. Telling them, like you, you made a deal, hold up your side of it. Because he won't even let masters just go and do whatever they want. Continues telling the servants, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. In effect, he's telling them, no matter how demeaning your job might be, no matter if you're scrubbing toilets or whatever, you're actually working for the creator of the universe, not so much your master. 
on Sunday, Drew used a great illustration of um, if you're if you're at McDonald's and you just hate the fact that your job right now is to turn burger patties on the grill. Um, there can be a little bit of despair in the heart. Um, but the day the president walks into your restaurant, all of a sudden you have more, like, you stand a little taller and you have a little more purpose as you do this job that you hated five minutes ago. Because now you feel as if you're working for someone important. And Paul says, you should feel like that all the time because of the gospel. Work as if you're working for the Lord Himself. And then, of course, verse 1 of chapter 4. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And again, a bit of a... Not as controversial because a, a man of wisdom would have known that to treat people harshly is not the best way to get all the work you can out of them. It's the best way to get a lot of work for a short period of time before you kill them. But loyalty is one of the best ways to engender hard work. So, this isn't as controversial. And yet, the gospel is still at work here as those who would have, whose society would have said are worth more than others are to treat someone with justice and mercy and kindness. Remembering that Someone else is your superior. His name is Jesus. And He too has treated you with justice. Actually, He has not treated you with justice, which is a good thing. He has extended mercy and kindness. And so, this is an incredible passage. It seems so plain and dull and kind of pedestrian. But Paul walks through all these relationships and says, in Jesus, everyone just has a little more dignity then society will tell you and treat them as such. Um, I think that's all I got here. So I'm going to turn it back over to Scott for a few minutes. Yeah, just a couple things to, re- to reflect on as, as, uh, right before you guys head back into a time of reflection. So I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a few moments a little bit just to reflect on this section and, and some things that Ryan said and point it out to you, and um, and then uh, after after that time you'll get to you'll get to again talk about it with those around you. A couple things I want to point out. One is where are you in this text? I just really want to ask that question and and give you something to reflect on. You know, Paul Paul goes into these roles and these responsibilities in these key relationships that we have that we're in. And so where are you? Where do you find yourself in this? You know, husbands, wives, children, parents, um, bond servants. So, so a, a, a modern day application of that would be what? What? <laughs> student. <laughs> student? Yes. Employee? Right? Masters would be maybe bosses um, or, or, or business owners or, or, you know, those kinds of things. And so... You have there's some there's some applications. So where are you in the text? And then the other thing that's interesting that um, if you if you go back through this, go back through and count how many times the Lord is the point, how how Jesus is really the heart of this, and and how he is he is the motivation for all these 
roles and responsibilities. So, so as you reflect on, on your, where you are in this, reflect on, okay, based on who the Lord is, how does that change the way you live out this role and this responsibility? So spend, spend a few minutes doing that, and then we'll come back together and discuss. Okay. So uh, in a moment, you're going to spend some time with, with people around you, but uh, something that's jumped out at me, and this really jumped out on Sunday and, and even more so um, tonight, this word provoke, because I too have a strong-willed child. Um, and my son, we, we've sat at dinner tables for hours, or he has anyway. And, you know, there's something about my son, and I pray that this becomes like this great attribute in life someday, but he wants to know, he wants to know exactly like what's, what's going to happen to him if he doesn't do what we ask him to do. So there's always this like, okay, dude, if you don't, if you, if you continue to do that, you're going to get in trouble. Like what? What are you going to do? Like what's going to happen? Well, you're going to get spanked. So like what, whatever, I, whatever I say there, I have to be willing to follow up with. First of all, that's, that's rule number one. I used to just get to, you know, say something extreme. He's like, really? You're going to do that? Well, no, I'm not going to. No, because then I'd send you to the hospital. No, and I'd be arrested. No, I'm not going to. Okay. Actually, what I'm going to do is this. Really? So is that going to hurt? Yes, it's going to hurt. Is it going to hurt really bad? <sighs> yes, it's, it's now going to hurt really bad. Because why are we having this conversation, you know? Um, so, and he, and I've noticed with him that I can easily provoke him um, when I, because he has this, he can have this dominant personality. And so the only way I've, the, the way I initially used to try to react to that was to just be more dominant. I'll just be more, I'll just be louder, I'll just be bigger, I'll just be, and to the point where I'm, I need to walk away, or I'll do something I should, I will regret. Uh, and so I, I've, this, this phrase has been kind of washing over me, and, and this word is reminding me of it, but um, something that I'm working on with my son is to fight back with patience. Because it's a fight no matter what we do. It's going to be a fight, I have to see it that way. Um, and so my way of fighting now is is more and more, I won't say 100%, more and more is to be patient. And, and it really does, he, he's going to do his thing no matter what, but I'm seeing now he's beginning to respond to, to that. And so I'm, I'm thankful the Lord is leading me there because there's been, uh, there's been some, some moments where I thought, okay, Someone else is going to have to parent him. Ryan, I'll trade you. I'll go, I'll go young. <laughs> yes. I will have more patience with your son than I, than I will with my own. But, um, but anyway, that's something that God has been, has been uh, leading me to, is, is to not provoke, but to, to be patient. So, spend, spend a few minutes just with people around you. What's jumped out at you? Where are you in this text? How's the Lord um, influenced that relationship, that role for you? Go.